You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Mark Rasmussinski and I, Niels Kastor-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. Now, for those of you who are regular listeners, our conversations are intended to give you as much of the nurture and encouragement as the turtles got back in the 1980s, as Jerry likes to put it. And if you're new to the show, we hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to Learn more by um, diving into the back catalog and listen to all the past episodes that you may have missed, like last week's episode with Moritz, where we went quite deep into his portfolio to see where the returns are coming from this year, how much is trend following, how much is spread trading, as well as crypto and newer markets that he's trading. So if you missed that one, I invite you to go back and listen to it. And maybe do as Jerry does, and that is to re-listen a few times to get all the nuances that we discuss. Mark, fantastic to be back with you this week. How are you doing? How are things where you are? Good, good. We're heading a height of fall foliage season here in New England. So we've got beautiful colors. It moves, obviously, from the mountains up north and south. So so I've been up in New Hampshire beautiful colors and it's it's peaking here in massachusetts now so it's a great time of year to be in in new england it is a fantastic time definitely also where i am today so uh, good to hear we got a great lineup of topics slightly different even though this one we probably touched on before but not in this level of detail so uh, i'm going to uh, enjoy this conversation for sure before we dive into all of that good stuff, uh, let me just uh, remind those of you who may have forgotten that we always would be so grateful if you would uh, share the podcast with some of your friends, some of your colleagues, or maybe family members who have an interest in finance and investing. And to make it easy for you to do so, I have actually created a link that you uh, can share with uh, the people that you find uh, would be most appropriate for our community here. And you can just use the link called toptradersonplug.com forward slash share. And then uh, your friends or family members will be able to find all the popular podcast players in one click and select the one that works best for them. Okay, with that said, let's dive into this week's market wrap. Fed Chairman Powell ended the week by delivering a kind of a wishy-washy overview of the economy and the monetary policy at a virtual panel discussion in fairness, he avoided using the word transitory to describe the rising prices that have consumers loudly complaining. Instead, he characterized inflation as being elevated and will likely stay that way a bit longer. He did acknowledge, uh, we have learned from the minutes of the last FOMC meeting, that taper will begin soon and conclude next summer. Meanwhile, the Bank of England shocked investors by communicating that they will be raising the overnight rate in the near term and perhaps as soon as November 4th. The reaction in the secondary market was an immediate move higher in interest rates, with two-year gilts rising 20 basis points on Monday. Investors are betting that this will not be a one-off and uh, that more rate hikes are coming. The futures market is pricing 100 basis points rate rise by next September. Of course, you would be forgiven to assume that UK stocks broadly retreated on this news, 
but you would be mistaken because the FTSE flirted most of the week with all-time highs, although it did close down about 53 basis points below that mark. While Powell is careful to avoid suggesting that a rate hike in Fed funds is anywhere in the foreseeable future, it seems like fixed income investors are not buying that. The two-year note yield continues to drift higher, closing the week at 0.46%, and the one-year forward rate is indicating that the one-year rate will hit 1% one year from now. Also this week, we had the third sloppy treasury auction this year, and the Fed is likely to be mildly concerned as they begin to taper their open market buying. The fixed income community has begun to ask themselves if this sloppiness will become the norm when the Fed is going to taper. With that said, Mark, always interested to see what's caught your attention since we last spoke, either market-wise or economically, whatever it might be. Well, you know, I'm not a crypto fan, but I will sort of say there was the launch of the first ETF in the United States for uh, cryptocurrencies. It's based off the uh, futures contract. So so we have to have an ETF off the futures, not the actual crypto uh, uh, themselves. But it's interesting how this market has developed and, 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 and we'll sort of say the concerns from regulators. And so, so that, that's a structural change that we sort of see. And I think that I'm looking at this from a wealth effect is, is that now that we have over a trillion dollars of crypto, you'd say like, well, how does that change people's behavior if all of a sudden you've created a trillion dollars worth of wealth? Do they spend and act differently than if that didn't exist? And, and I think that that, from a policy perspective, that's that's a very interesting issue that we still have not, haven't come to grips with. Overall, in the macro economy, I, I, I feel like we're in a transition point. We're waiting for tapering. We're waiting to see what happens. And I think that there's a constant waiting for new information to sort of see whether congestion and oil prices will actually slow global growth or whether this is, is something that's, uh, that is, that the global economies can look beyond. And of course, you know, the the perennial issue where we, it's almost, I don't want to say a black box, but it is, is that the big unknown is always Chinese economics. We really don't know what growth uh, is in China. Uh, and we look at the uh, property development, Evergrande issues, and you just don't know how that will spill over or provide a contagion for the rest of the world. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you mentioning uh, crypto, I mean, I guess also that now that the SEC has approved a crypto mutual fund, I guess it's going to be much, much harder and probably, I don't know, uh, maybe impossible for the US to do what China did in terms of banning crypto. I mean, they've kind of given it the stamp of approval. So I think that's actually a major difference from a week ago when it wasn't trading. Right. And we saw that one of the stable coins, you know, uh, we, we won't name the name, it was actually fined something like $41 million for not having enough money backing up the stable coin. So we have this, uh, this conflict where you see that we have approval, we have more usage, we see prices going up, we have one country that bans, then we have another that's now allowing for ETFs. So, so it's sort of like, well, where are we going with all of the regulatory environment? And then I think it provides uncertainty. And obviously, I think that regulators want to, uh, are concerned 
about the safety of investors. At the same time, it seems as though that you need to sort of make some decisions as opposed to doing this piecemeal process of approve some things and then say, but we also have concerns and we feel there needs to be greater regulation. Yeah, no, absolutely. Exciting times, actually. All right, so a quick update on performance. From a Don point of view, um, the tailwind of our strategies continued this week. The week, however, was for a change, not led by energies. They took a little bit of a breather, but rather by the fixed income sector, where our short positioning which hurt a little bit in uh, the last few months, did really well as we see uh, yields rise in many countries and maturities around the world. Equities came back uh, towards the end of the week uh, to finish in the black. Currencies were slightly down this week, as were softs, grains, meats, and metals, but overall a positive week, strong month. My trend barometer kind of confirms this environment at the moment. It finished the week at a level of 50, which is a positive level. In terms of volatility, uh, the week was uh, one of the more interesting ones in the volatility markets that we've seen for a while. Now, the S&P 500 reached a new all-time high, I think around 45.60 for the first time since September. And the VIX index, a new post-COVID-19 low at around 15, the developments during this week were not uh, as clear at the end as the end of the week numbers suggest, though, because for the first few days of the week, continue, we saw the overall trend uh, that we've seen in the previous weeks where investors were reducing their tail protection as some speculative call buying, uh, you know, with some speculative call buying early in the week. And then on Thursday, as the uh, S&P hit the all-time high, this kind of changed quite a bit where puts were suddenly sought after again and calls were being sold, and that continued through Friday. S&P called open interest is close to its peak, and while still above long-term historical averages, the participation of retail traders in single-stock options seems to be waning a bit, or at least shifting a bit as both GameStop and AMC reached their lowest implied volatility for this year. Now, perhaps I can suggest that the people are just looking elsewhere, like the new SPAC called Digital World Acquisition that is tied to Trump Media and Technology Group. The SPAC soared more than 350% on Thursday and another 100% on Friday. And that actually includes that it gave back 50% from its high on Friday. For my own trend-following portfolio, it was a negative week, but it still leaves it up about 5.41% for the month, up 9.9% for the year. Performance so far this month breaks down so that it's really just Group 2 models that are doing the work, up uh, more than 5%. Group 1 and Group 2, uh, sorry, Group 3 models are down a little bit. In terms of sector attributions, top three this uh, so far this month, Energy, space, metals, and bonds, and the worst sectors for the month are meats and softs and equities. Equities are actually the worst one. And if we drill down to single markets for the month, the best ones are zinc, crude oil, and gasoline. And then at the bottom, we find the Nikkei, the DAX, and the German Bund. In terms of trading activity for the week, what did we see? Uh, Monday, the week started out with a strategy getting out of some long sugar positions as well as a short entry in short sterling, apropos what the Bank of England came out with this week. 
Tuesday was quite busy, um, or relatively busy, with some exits in cocoa, short sterling, zinc, and live cattle. Wednesday, there were more exits in aluminum, Euribor, German Bunds, and the euro dollar, meaning the interest rate. And then it also went long, uh, had a long entry in lead. And Thursday, the system took some profits and uh, more profits in aluminum, bought uh, some Aussie dollar, and sold more of the euro dollar. And there were no trades on Friday. Finally, the risk to stop level is currently at 12.3%. That's down from 15% last week. So as the performance came off a little bit, stops moved closer and therefore the overall risk went down. Now, Mark, now we're going to jump into our topic for this this week, which is very exciting actually, because Nobel Prize winner Daniel Kahneman said, no one takes a decision because of a number. They need a story. So let's start with that and dig into your uh, latest paper, probably not published yet. I'm sure we're getting a sneak preview here, but where you're trying to, um, well, not trying to, where you talk about or write about narratives and storytelling and why they really matter. But maybe we should kick it off by just talking a little bit about what do we really mean by narrative? I think let's start out with just this, uh, let's go back to your simple economics. And if you go back to one of your early economics courses, they often talked about normative economics and positive. Normative is what should be, and positive is what is. You know, what are the uh, the facts? And what we find out is, is that narratives, stories, words are very important in the process of finance in terms of the you know purchase and sale of investment uh, investment ideas this is that there's the uh, we'll call it the normative world of academics they say like well let's look at just the quantitative numbers and we could use that to make in, uh, investment decisions and then we look at the actual world as it is the positive world this is that people tell stories people uh, you know use pitch books they uh, they want to sort of go visit investors and tell them what they're doing. So let's take this at the at the extreme. This is that the academic would sort of say that, well, let's just uh, if you want to buy an investment, go get the track record, go get some returns, find out what the sharp ratio uh, is, or look at what the volatility is. Compare it against others, and you could rank order them, and then you should make a choice, and it should be relatively easy. So, so the numbers, you know, drive all the decisions. And reality is, is, is at first, data is messy. So, so what what leads to a second issue is, is that there has to be other alternatives to help make decisions, and that what come that that's where narrative comes in. So. Now, let me give some examples of why data is messy, and then we'll talk a little bit about what narrative actually does or what's the purpose of narrative. So, and let's look at specifically for, you know, trend following and and hedge funds in general. This is it. Let's say a new manager comes out uh, and he he wants to raise money. Okay. Uh, Where's his track record? So if you're a um, quant, you sort of say, well, I can't evaluate that manager at all because there's no data to evaluate. Hence, I can't invest. And some people take that view, but we'll sort of say that a new manager, the only thing he could do to sort of sell his fund 
is to tell a narrative or a story. So uh, if let's say that you have track records that have different start dates and different periods of time or different parts of the business cycle, again, it's hard to be able to assess because they start at different times and so they represent different periods in the economic cycle. So you, you, know, you ask the manager to tell a story. What would you do under other scenarios? The first thing you also do when you look at a track record is, is, is that, uh, or at least I do oftentimes, is I look at outliers, okay? I look for the best month. I look for the worst month. And what's the next thing that comes out of your mouth when you look at those outliers? You ask them to say, explain why. What, why did you lose money? And that's not a numbers issue. That's a story. That's a narrative. So narrative actually provides information for investors to make decisions. There is noise in data, and a narrative or a story helps to reduce that noise. So another example would be is that if we look at uh, statistically, is it hard to differentiate across managers? And the answer statistically is very hard. Are you? Uh, how often are you 95% confident that one manager is different than another? That seldom happens. <laughs> so, so, so if that's the case, then once again, this is that, well, if they're not statistically different and yet their track records are, you know, one is slightly better than the other, how do you make that decision? Again, you're, you ask the manager for a narrative, for a story to tell uh, what's going on. And the final problem for quants, it's sort of say like you run it against some factor analysis and you find that you have low R squared. So, so the amount that can be explained by normal factors is extremely low. Well, if you can't explain the performance of the manager by any you know, uh, factors, what you're left is you're going to have to go out there and sort of say, well, tell me your narrative. Tell me why you make money. Tell me why you lose money. So in that sense, this is that uh, uh, we use narrative as a way to sort of help us reduce noise, help us to explain what can't be explained by numbers. So it is interesting that the quote that you start with is from Daniel Kahneman, which I find is, is very fascinating. No one makes a decision because of a number. They need a story. Here's the Nobel Prize winner in behavioral science. He says that behavior is constantly biased. I've, uh, I, I almost have an encyclopedia of, of behavioral biases that exist. But in reality, as I said, what I'm going to tell you is that most people make decisions based on a story and not a number, which seems to be fly in the face of a lot of what he's saying. now. What he's saying is, is that, albeit flawed, you know, most investor decision makers like and want a story. I'll go one further. I'd sort of say that I've been on your podcast for a number of times. Uh, you've had other guests on, on your podcast. Is, is that your podcast wouldn't exist if it wasn't for storytelling or narrative. This is that that's the way on, um, on, on across the podcast you impart information. If, if you just had people read numbers and, and sort of say, well, here's the number for market, uh, for market one, here's the return for market two, uh, I don't think you'd have a lot of listeners <laughs> that people no, would you. like to see stories. 
So what does a narrative actually do? It sort of provides what we call strategic information. And we'll call that that's know-how as opposed to just facts, which is know-that. So strategic information is important. Uh, and it provides intuition. It provides what is going on behind numbers. So it's not just a style of, of, of writing. I think that some people will sort of are put off by the idea of, oh, narrative or storytelling is important because they would argue that's just marketing. You know, I'm not really good at storytelling. I, I like to have the numbers speak for themselves. But we'll even sort of say that, you know, great science is driven by the explanation or description or story. And we'll sort of say that uh, we could give uh, a lot of our great science is actually driven by story. Is that, you know, Isaac Newton sitting under an apple tree, okay? And we use that as the story for gravity. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci drops balls from the uh, Leaning Tower of Pisa, and we use that to, you know, also ex explain some basics, physics. So uh, for more advanced uh, physics, we could think of the story of Schrodinger's cat, where, you know, is there is the cat in the box or not? And, and ha, ha, what what is the essence of happens if we open the box? So we use stories as a way to sort of provide communication of complex information. And think of it in some sense is that a lot of the modern economy, which includes advertising and marketing, is narrative. So when you buy a product, you don't sort of uh, you don't buy a product because they sort of say, here's all our features. So if you buy detergent, it's not that uh, here are the ingredients and it gives you a list of all the chemicals that are used in your in your detergent. What it does is, is that it lifts stains from your shirt. <laughs> so, so the story and narrative or the description is, is that it gives a, uh, a simple story for sort of complex information. You don't, you don't have to understand how the integration of soap versus grease you know, lifts stains from a shirt. This is that it just sort of says it, it brightens and whitens and it lifts stains. So, so in some sense, uh, you know, this narrative, you know, provides uh, simplicity for there's complexity. Can I um, just, I don't want to ruin your flow, um, <laughs> but I, I, you need a little bit of a drink, yeah. I think, just to uh, keep Sometimes your voice. Sometimes once I get started, who knows where this goes. No, 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 <laughs> that's fine. It's absolutely fine. But I was thinking, I was sitting here listening to you, and I'm thinking in my head, I can't think of a... I can't think of an example where one can live without the other, meaning where you can just have narrative or where you can just have data. I, I can't, certainly not in our world, right? Because if you were just looking at performance records and you had no idea how they got those numbers, it could be pure luck or it could be crazy risk-taking or whatever it might be. But if you have someone who comes in and tells a great story about his process, <laughs> but you have no idea whether that produced a positive return or a negative return, what are you going to do with that? So, yeah, I mean, right. Uh, narrative by itself is uh, not sufficient to make a decision. Uh, neither is data by itself. Or, I mean, let me put this: there are people who do it, 
So, so it could be sufficient. So, uh, but when you think of, I always think of necessary and sufficient. This is that narrative is both necess- uh, necessary but not sufficient to make a investment decision. And I think that this actually sort of really sort of hits home with the trend following narrative. And and I think that we'll say as an industry that that I think that managers have been grappling with the trend following narrative for decades. Yeah. And we're going to come to that, I'm sure, as we move uh, further into this. But another thing that kind of, uh, again, just sitting here listening to you, I was thinking, when did narrative become even a term that I would kind of think of in my career, right? I can't pinpoint a particular time. Was it 2015? Was it 2010? I don't know. But I know it hasn't been there all the time. I've never I have not thought about the importance of narrative for the last 35 years as as I've been involved with trend following. I haven't. But I have been thinking about it a hell of a lot in the last X number of years, whether it's five or ten years, I, I can't really remember. But it is something that I really appreciate the importance of this. And I also appreciate the lack of great narrative to some extent that our industry, as you mentioned, have been dealing with. I'm curious in your days, if 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 you remember your days at John W. Henry. Right. Was narrative something that you thought about? Was it something you were using? If so, what was the narrative uh, for a firm like John Henry? Well, you know, I think that uh, first, uh, just to answer the question on when did narrative start to really pick up or the use of the word narrative, is it, uh, you know, uh, Robert Schiller, the Nobel Prize winner, wrote a book of, just a few years ago called Narrative Economics. Exactly, yeah. So, and, and he talked about this as in terms of contagion and bubbles. I was a little disappointed in where that research went, but it, that, that I think that started to sort of put this out there as a, as a word or a concept piece. I think we always think of narrative as just that we may not have used that term as, as what we're using now. But let's talk about, you know, John Henry and Elsa to say that this, I say that the, that the number one issue that we would grapple with, you know, from a marketing perspective in turn to raise assets was how to present the narrative of trend following. So this was, uh, and, and I think that this is still the case. So the narrative was, is that it was an alternative asset, but uh, at first, and because there weren't as many alternative assets that existed in the, in the late 90s or in early 90s. And that sort of got co-opted, uh, you know, so so that was one part of the narrative. The narrative was, is that it was a sort of a, a form of protection because it was uncorrelated. But that in itself is, is that talking about uncorrelation is, is that, it doesn't really sort of resonate well. And then I, I think that there was the term crisis alpha that uh, it was developed. And and, and, and and I think that, that that was a great term to sort of condense a lot of information in just two words. I think when you tear it apart, uh, there's something lacking about this. Is it, is it, Alpha or is it beta? When should it work? When shouldn't it work? 
definitely, definitionally, it's it's sort of uh, it, it it is uh, you know crisis alphas because you know you have to have stock markets go down more than X percent, and then here's what the response is of managed futures. Again, that's not an explanation. That's sort of just a, a fact. Is is that if this, then this is what occurs. But that doesn't explain what do trend followers do. So I'd sort of say that the the narrative was always very difficult, and we actually had these, we'll say, battles internally because, in some senses, is it uh, one form of trend following? Pure trend followers say, like, well, it doesn't matter what the markets are. I just they're they're just little you know blips. They're just data points. Uh, if you took all the names of the markets off the screen and just showed me the time series, I could still do my run my program. I could still be a trend follower. And yet at the same time, is is that when you went out and you visited with clients, they'd want to say like, okay, where'd you make money? And you say, well, we made money in the gold market, in the corn market, and treasury bonds. Well, why'd you make money in gold? And say, well, you know, yeah, and I'm not being facetious, and we wouldn't use these exact words. We'd say, well, we made money in gold on the long side because the price went up and we were long. And 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 in some sense, from a trend follower's perspective, you'd say, well, that's enough. That's what we do. <laughs> there's nothing more. But but that they there's there's sort of we'll say that you'd look at investors and they'd be somewhat deflated. Oh, is that it? Oh, okay. Yeah. What am I going to tell my client? And then I'll say. Oh, but there was a great bind for for gold by central banks. Oh, okay, tell me more. And so, so, so they actually wanted a narrative that was unrelated to what, in essence, you did it as a trend follower. So, and you have this sort of uh, difficult situation. If you sort of said, "I'm a quant," look at prices. You know, they either go up or they go down. I'm either long or short. And if let's say there's a lot of noise, I'm neutral. And and if that's that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. And in reality, is is that a lot of investors would just sort of be would sort of say like, well, that doesn't help me much because I want to have to tell my clients about what you do, and this isn't helping me to solve that problem. And then let's say like you have after I leave. The next person that comes in is a hedge fund manager who's a discretionary stock picker. He'd say, well, I talked to the CEO of this company, and I uh, it's a restaurant company, and I ate their food, and I, I looked in their kitchen, and I scoured over their footnotes in their, in their annual report, and I saw this, and you know, here's what their cost of goods for, you know, their food costs, and here's their margins. This is that, you know, the... Uh, the investor is often sitting at the edge of his seat, sort of saying, oh, tell me more. This is so interesting. I got all these nuggets of information that I could tell. Now, in reality, that manager who's telling that story is not providing a lot of information on exactly how he made that decision. He's providing a lot of facts and weaving them together. But that was more compelling because it was a story. It was a narrative. Yeah, so it's just a couple of things that come to mind when you, uh, as you speak. First of all, I would say I agree with kind of your evolution of the narrative. I think maybe, possibly, thanks to uh, Richard here on, on the podcast, maybe we have a new narrative, hunting for outliers. I think could be a new narrative a little bit that we uh, will hear uh, more of, we'll see. 
But also when I think back, whether it's John Henry, whether it's Chesapeake, uh, and whether it's done, I think a lot of the narratives that I remember, at least from the early days, was very much about the person, actually. It was a story of John Henry, the story of the turtles when it came to Jerry, and when it was a story about Bill Dunn and all of that. So I think back then, and also maybe towards some of the uh, other, you know, well-known managers more in the hedge fund space, uh, Paul Tudor Jones and stuff like that. It was a lot about them, I think, as as people. But the other thing that I thought of uh, was, I don't know if you ever watched that game. Sh- I think there's a game show on television where you have like a, a, a line of, of 10 people and the first person has to whisper a sentence to uh, the next one. And then the next one has to whisper it to you. You're right. So when it gets to number 10, <laughs> it's something completely different to what was said uh, at number one. And that goes to your point. And I think this is really important. And that is what we as managers have to realize is that what we give our investors when we talk to them has to be something that they can repeat accurately to their colleagues, right? When they sit there in their committees, et cetera, et cetera. So, so narrative to me um, is incredibly important, um, not only in terms of us communicating directly to the client, but how we present it so that the clients are able to accurately or close to the same way we would describe it, talk about it internally on their side, right? And 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 so and this is something I've thought a lot about in, in my own work as to how can I try and explain maybe our difference, our unique selling point, so to speak, at done, but in a way where it's actually super easy to kind of remember and 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 then hopefully obviously people kind of would also be able to tie it in by themselves more or less to periods where performance had been different to maybe the industry so it became easy for them to do so all of your points i think are incredibly important and i didn't want to interrupt your flow so i'm very interested as to where we go from here in the uh, in in our story in our narrative Right. Well, before I get that, I think that you brought up a great point about uh, in managed futures. And I think in other hedge funds, this is that this this story about personality, because people love a story of personality. And I think that there's a there's a quote I always like is, is that from Tolstoy, he said, every story is, is, is has only one of two themes in literature. You know, one is about a man taking a journey or a stranger coming to town. So, and and rea- and reality is is, is that that uh, most of the great storytelling, uh, because there's narrative, which is just explanation, and we'll sort of say that strategic information of knowing how, as opposed to knowing that. But the manifestation of narrative is often in terms of a story, and if you notice, is, is that yes, there have been, and it's not just in managed futures. This is that the story is about a personality, okay? So uh, if you talk about Jerry, it's it's the turtle story. It's a great story. This is that that's just a, uh, and it's something that uh, it's emotional. It's something that sort of resonates with people. They could sort of remember it. It's easy to remember, you know, and you think about a turtle. You know, so, so like you'll you'll never 
forget that story. And so the reason why it sort of, even though it sort of, it occurred in the eighties and it's still being used is because it's just a great narrative and story. Okay. And what I'll sort of say that oftentimes with hedge funds, which are driven by an individual or team of individuals that you could think of in a story time uh, level, it's always the hero's journey. Okay, so so when you think about it, is is, is that whether it be Jerry, John, Henry, Dunn, uh, Tudor, is that all of them that were on a quest? Okay, so so there was this complexity of the market. Is is that there is something that there's a challenge? Is is that how do I understand or deal with this complexity, these markets? You know, when you go back to the board of trade, the yelling and screaming in the pit, how do I make sense of this? And so, and now I'm, I'm starting my journey. I start to build a model. And then from the model, this is that I find that I have some experiences along my, my hero's journey. I hit some adversity. I have a drawdown. How did I deal with the drawdown? Okay, I, uh, I have a new challenge. There's a financial crisis. How do I deal with this financial crisis? As I'm going along in my journey, you know, what do I learn from this? What new adventures am I going to face? How did I deal with the, the, the next challenge? That next challenge could be, uh, you know, Powell and, and, and his comments. Corona. <laughs> Corona pandemic. This is that. But when you think about it, this is that what is really compelling is, is that and sometimes is that we, we look at the manager he tells about his experience. He tells about his journey to get to where he is now. And then he talks about how he learned things along the way. And let's tie this back to due diligence. This is that, you know, important part of due diligence is you ask, what's the pedigree of the manager? What's his experience? Where's he been? Okay. And if let's say that, uh, a new manager, okay, and he doesn't have any experience. He hasn't worked any place else, and he has. Let's say I've got the best trend-following model ever. You probably are not going to invest because there's no real story with that. He shows you the number; it's a back-tested number. He said, "Like, eh, I'm, it, it doesn't really excite me." Then the next person comes in and says, "Like, well." You know, I worked for Goldman Sachs and early in my career and I was learning how to trade. And then I worked for so-and-so in a, at a hedge fund. And this is where I really, you know, learned how to build models. But then I decided that there's a better way to do this on my own. So I, so I'm starting out my new firm. Would you like to invest? And, and that story, I think that people uh, will sort of resonate with. And they'll probably give that person money, even though he may not have a track record like the first person, because they could say, I understand the hero's journey that he has taken along the way to gain experience. And he can talk about how he handled adversity along the way so that it tells a story. And actually, I think that is important, right? Because, um, well, first of all, we, we as uh, and I think it's not just a saying, right? But it does, 
you know you 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 learn more from difficult times than from from good times even though I'm, you know some people would say well no you learn from both and that's probably true as well but anyways it it is it is important right because that journey and as you rightly say i mean especially the the uh, difficult periods are very important i think for investors when they analyze managers how did they react it also goes to the point about are you doing what you're saying, right? I mean, if people say they're systematic, but then they do discretionary trades at the same time, then there's some inconsistency, right, in the narrative, right. so to speak. And again, it's it's not really a it's not a judgment at all. It's just a fact. But I think we, uh, whether it was us or, 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 or one of the other guys, during COVID, it became clear. And it was talked about by some investors on on some of these uh, webinars that some of the very large, very well established and respected managers had made some discretionary overrides um, in their system during COVID. Right. And and so and and I, so that is interesting, and it's it's super important for investors to know that because if you only see the track record. And you think, well, how did he do so well during that period? But it could have been just a discretionary override, for example. Then that doesn't give you the full story, right? So, right. Um, but but it is important, uh, and and I think experience is, um, as you rightly say, a lot of people nowadays you can go and do your your back test and your research, and you can come up with something that looks great. And of course, we as managers who've been around for almost fifty years. We have some ugly periods in our track record. There's no way around it. You know, I talked a couple of weeks ago about the fact that my son 10 years ago had a, a cardiac arrest and subsequently had a huge uh, heart or open, open heart surgery. But I, I but I told him as he was growing, um, you know, or recovering from that, because he's obviously left with a with a massive scar in his chest, that those scars are really important and it's nothing to be embarrassed about in fact a scar shows you that you survived that's the because people who didn't don't survive these things they don't get a scar right they don't right. get an operation and it's the same with track records those of us who have the 40 50 percent drawdowns but we have them in our track record to show it shows that we survived those right. who those track records where where they're not there it's because people went out of business right so that that to, this is why some of these things are really important and very very close to my heart when we talk about these things. Right, but I think it's important is is, is that the survival is two parts. You know, when you think of a manager, uh, there there's the one part which is the factual is that I had this drawdown and I came out the other side and I survived as a firm. Okay, that, that's just the fact. Okay, uh, and people could see that in the track record. But what they're really looking for, what differentiates one manager from another, is the narrative associated with, say, okay, I had this drawdown. Why, why was it caused? What was unique? What did I learn from this? What am I doing differently because of this? And I think that that's what, so to say, differentiates fact from narrative. And this is what actually sort of differentiates one manager from another. And this is what what narrative, the positive value of narrative, what it provides. Yeah. And and I guess what I was also trying to get in, at least in my own mind, trying to say is that 
I think there is kind of a negative in our industry. There is kind of a negative um, association with big drawdowns. But for people who've survived, and as you rightly say, can explain and and all of that, actually, some of those drawdowns are some of the best things that could have happened to a manager. Also, because for the investors to invest with managers who've been through these very difficult times and have not made some stupid decision at a time of, of, of crisis, so to speak, that's very important compared to people who've never been in a situation like that where you have no idea how they're going to react when um, things get really dicey, right? So, so uh, yeah, anyways, back to your, uh, yeah. Well, well, the important point I think you make there is, is, is that, 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 let's tie this back, is, is that there's the actual events, the facts, okay, there's the experience that the manager learned from this, okay? but that experience that he learned or what he uh, what he got out of that event is internalized. And so the narrative is actually sort of imparts the information that has been internalized through experience that's not seen in facts and allows that to then be transferred to the uh, to the investor in a, in a way to be able to differentiate one manager from another. Okay. So I'll, I'll go into, you know, yeah. we, we sort of talked about, you know, the, the hero's journey, and then we talked about uh, this from a storytelling perspective. And, and, and so, so we, we, of course, have to sort of pay homage to sort of uh, our also economic theory, and I think that the narrative is important when you think about the what we call the principal agent problem between uh, the uh, the principal, who's the investor, and the agent as a manager. So, so I as a principal give you money, and money management is a very weird service because if let's say I have a contract for servicing your furnace as you get close to winter, this is it. I pay you a contract, you know, you'll come out and service this and then you'll make sure that my heat is on. So so money management is different because what I do is, is I contract with a service, but I give you a large sum of money and I give it to you and that under the idea that you'll provide the service of generating returns in the future. But it's not as though that I sort of say... Uh, I will contract for you to generate returns, and then I will give you the money after the fact. I have to give you all the money up front. Yeah. So, and and what happens is is that uh, returns are a weird service relative to other businesses because what you sort of say when you're a money manager first, what's the thing that you see at the bottom of every page? Past performance is not indicative of future success. What happens if you went to any other business and you walk in the door and someone says, I just want to let you know, before we do anything else, I just want to do a past performance of anything I've done for any other clients is not indicative that I could be able to do this for you. So, so uh, you would probably run out the other, uh, the, the door and say, I got to find somebody else. So, so, but the reason why we have this disclaimer is because the relationship between what you do and what are the results is somewhat ambiguous. So, uh, so when we think about this principal agent problem, there's asymmetric information. This is that I have to give you a large sum of money. Okay, uh, 
on a returns that it's not clear you could be able to replicate or produce in the future. And I don't really know what you do every day in your firm. Okay, but, you know, I give you the money. You, you sort of say that uh, I'm going to generate this kind of return. You tell me that you're going to trade futures. And then you sort of say, uh, okay, but I really don't know what you're going to do. I'm really at a loss. I'm, a, I'm, at, a, I'm at an information disadvantage of how you're going to generate those returns. Now, you could sort of say, well, I'll give you transparency. But not every manager is going to give you full transparency of all their positions in the past. And tell you, I'm going to give you all the positions on ongoing, right? So, uh, so you're still at an information disadvantage. And then I always sort of said we had clients uh, back in the day. I still have clients that so you say like, well, I want to have all of your trades because I want to. I, I got to have complete transparency. And I said, well, we can give you all the trades every day, and I could send you a flat file of you know, everything we did in the last 24 hours. By the time you process them, look at it, and uh, be able to assess what I did, we'll be on to the next day. <laughs> and 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 even if I gave you a list of all of my trades, that may not be able to tell you exactly. You can say, this is what I traded, but that doesn't tell you what I did in senses that why I did it. You don't have the why, how, what, and when. And so, so, so you have this big asymmetric information problem associated with money management, and it's really bad in money management because we'll we'll sort of say that there's a there's kind versus wicked systems of learning. Now, a kind system would be is is that if I do A, I'll get B as the result. A wicked learning, and and so I know what the relationship between A and B is. So, so and it, and let's say it's a, so. So every time I I hammer a nail, the nail goes into the wood. Okay, we 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 know what the relationship between those two are. A wicked system said said I do some activity, I could follow a process, but I don't know what the results are going to be, and I can't guarantee the results on the other side. So there's only a correlation between what it. I do, and what is the result I get? And in that sense, this is that that uh, it's hard for you to understand what the manager does from just the data. It's hard for you to understand what you're paying for. And so, what happens is that narrative is a way to solve this asymmetric information because narrative explains what is the edge between one manager and another. And so a perfect example is, is that you look at Dunn as a manager. This is that what the narrative does is say, here's how I can differentiate myself, or this is my edge relative to my peers that you can't see in the data. And this is there, without you seeing all of my positions and seeing all of my models, the narrative is is trying to solve that that information problem where I have information or full information about what I do, but you don't. And so the storytelling or the narratives attempts to try to solve that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Completely agree. Uh, so, and, and I think that as an, as an, as a industry, both for hedge funds in general and trend following is, is that this is the most critical issue with, uh, for, 
dealing with investors because it's one is telling a narrative of what it is that I do. And then do I have a narrative for how I'm going to perform in the future based on different scenarios? So, and I think that uh, when we've had problems with trend following and, and the story that has been used by crisis alpha is, is that we've seen crises and then some managers haven't been able to perform during those crises. And so that, that means that the narrative didn't work versus what was told. And, and this is what causes the problems with investors is they say, I hear the narrative, I internalize it, I believe it, and then I find that the narrative actually is proves to not be true or that the narrative doesn't you know, play out the way I, I was expected. And that causes the uh, investor to say, well, I'm going to have to find someone else because because what I thought I was, I was getting is not what I actually received. Yeah, and I think that's true as well. I think there's been a lot of disappointment in that department in terms of of that, but probably because of two two reasons. One is the term crisis alpha was so easy for uh, investors to gravitate to. It was just a perfect two-word description, right? But of course, we forgot to mention exactly what do we mean by a crisis, right? How long should it be? What what does it, you know? So there were a lot of nuances, and this is obviously why we now see that some people think we have a crisis every other month when there is a 5% drop somewhere, and and if, if managers don't deliver positive returns, then they say, well, it doesn't really work, um, which of course is not true, um, and so on and so forth. But I'm thinking here, uh, if we broaden the scope a little bit, Mark, and that is, don't all strategies have problems with <laughs> or challenges uh, with narrative? I mean, you can, I imagine if you're a global macro manager and you say, yeah, but you know, I have these, all these ways of analyzing the markets. And, um, you know, if the world gets hit by a pandemic and GDP falls by 5%, stocks will go down. Well, hey, what do we know? They're up 90% in the last 18 months. <laughs> I mean, things like that. I mean, what I'm trying to say is that having challenges with narrative in, in as an industry um, is that really unique to trend oh, followers? Do you oh think? no! In fact, I think that I'm I'm sort of speaking to the audience uh, that you have, but I would sort of say that the narrative for many other hedge fund strategies are as difficult or worse. I think global global macro is interesting because it's a great place to tell stories about okay, what's happening in monetary policy, what's happening around the globe. But as a narrative of how you're going to generate return, it is not really well-defined. And if anything, managed futures is a better narrative because they like, here's what, uh, let's say trend following in managed futures. Here's how exactly I, I generate returns. I'm looking at prices. I look at trends in prices. When prices uh, do this, this is why I'm going to make money. It actually is, is, is that... It is a tight story, and it's a much. There's more clarity with that story than maybe some other strategies. I mean, that would be my suggestion as well, right? Uh, yet we struggle. Uh, just to just just to throw out an example of that, right? 
you and I and, and, and our listeners as well have heard so many times over the years that trend following is dead, right? I mean, right. every time there's a little bit of bad performance, trend following is dead. And, you know, here we are. Uh, it, this is the third year in a row where we have great performance. Uh, this one being one of the best years so far, at least, that I can remember from an industry point of view. Um, we have... Um, a strategy that thrives on uncertainty. I think the world is more uncertain than it's been for a long time. We have a strategy that historically have done well um, in high inflationary times. Um, well, hey, inflation is pretty much uh, you know everywhere we look right now, um, and um, and and so on and so forth. Yet I was just uh, catching up on on uh, HFR's uh, Q3 flows, and I see. Yet again, outflows from managed futures, right? right? And I'm thinking, what more do investors want in terms of arguments or evidence for embracing this strategy that has been around for, you know, five, six decades, um, unlike any other investment strategy, frankly? Um, so it, it, it's, a, it's a puzzle for me, let's put it that way. We'll sort of say that uh, we've been talking for the last 45 minutes about uh, narrative as a positive force, that it provides uh, information, it reduces noise, it's an adjunct to quantitative analysis. There's also false narrative. So so you can have a situation, for example, is, is that uh, the narrative trend following is dead. It's easy when it, uh, it's easy to tie to bad performance. And so so we could sort of say that a good narrative is sort of short and sweet and easy to get in people's mind. It's a meme that 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 can fit in people's head easily. It's sort of, it could be a shorthand for, for how to make decisions. But that doesn't mean that it's always true. It could be false. So, but, you know, I, I think that I, I sort of feel and I started this out when I was at John Henry, and I think I sort of still believe this is, is that the narrative that I like for managed futures is, is that the idea that there are two types of trading strategies. There's convergent and divergent. And that if you sort of say that more so than crisis alpha, if there's a movement away from an equilibrium is if there's a divergence in markets so that they're, they're sort of like a... a you know, trends are moving away from what was the, you know, where the uh, equilibrium price has been, that, that that's when you'll make money. And that we'll say many other trading strategies are convergent when uh, markets are like rubber bands and this is uh, get too far uh, out of line, then they're going to come back. And, and so, so a lot of, a lot of other hedge fund strategies are convergent and yet what makes managed futures unique is its divergent or trend following is its divergent characteristics, and I think that that's a that's a good narrative. It's it's not it's not a great. It may not be as good a story, but it's good at explaining what it is we we, we do. So, which other strategies in your? I don't know if you've thought about this, but which other strategies in in your view lends themselves well to narrative? Every strategy has its own narrative. And I'd sort of say that the, the less it can be explained by quantitative uh, methods, the more that narrative becomes uh, critical. 
And I'm not, I don't know if that answers your question. Well, something like private it. equity, I would imagine. Oh, then, well, yeah. that's a perfect example. Is this is that private equity? Okay, I'm going to give you money for investments that you're going to make over the next seven plus years, but I'm not going to. I don't know exactly what I'm going to invest in. I'm just going to have a capital call. And, but I'm going to say that my narrative is, is that I'm really good at finding these companies and buying them cheap and then being able to sell them seven years later at a huge premium and make you a lot of money. That, I'm being a little bit facetious, but there is a unique narrative. Even StatArb that has a narrative is, is, is that there is a close relationship between you know a set of stocks but as those but if those relationships fall out of favor or they start to change i'm able to you know measure how they're going to sort of converge back into you know into equilibrium and i make money by by sort of looking for longs and shorts that are out of out of whack relative to their normal relationship so Every market has its narrative, and it also say the challenges for whether it's trend following or other strategies. How do I have to know what other narratives are so that I can be able to say, how does my narrative compared with the narrative of the person who's coming in next after me or that I have to compete with? And so there's always been, I think, in trend following the idea that well, I'm competing against other trend followers. So all I have to do is show that I'm better than my peers or better than an index and money should flow my way. And reality is, is that no, it's your narrative relative to your peers is one battle that you fight. There's also the narrative battle that you fight of how does my narrative fit versus all the other strategies that are available. And so when you go to an investor or when an investor is thinking about uh, investing, he's saying, I'm comparing your track record with another's, but I'm also comparing your narrative versus other strategies. Do I think that your story resonates better with the, than the next person? Yeah, no, absolutely. I want to, because uh, we have been going for an hour, and I might want to give you the opportunity to dive into just one of the other points you mentioned, if you think uh, there's something to it. But I want to ask you a final question on narrative, because I'm sure this is something we're going to come back to uh, in the future. But I wanted to ask you one more thing, and that is, okay, so... So, so narrative kind of helps uh, explain and contextualize data and information, and it, it, it creates this story that explains our process and performance. And, and in a sense, you could say the narrative is kind of very unique to us as a manager. But here's the question. Wouldn't it be also an advantage if we understand the audience that we want to give our narrative to so well that we use those the words or or we 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 talk about it in the way we know the audience will respond to so let me give you an example we can have one narrative and we can tell it to two different investors and they might have two very different reactions so one of the things you and I talked about last time, I think when we did the due diligence and why people invest was we said, well, hang on, maybe 
the way um, Don or Chesapeake used to explain what they were doing didn't sit so well with the CFA-type crowd that came with another skill set, had read different books, um, and certainly didn't know much about, you know, uh, turtles and 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 other animals. Um, do, do you know what I mean? So what I'm saying is that actually as managers or anyone really, um, it's not just about our story, our narrative, our explanation. It is as much also about understanding who you're dealing with and then trying to explain that narrative, change it up a little bit so that it fits well with the audience that are oh, you're trying to uh, tell it to. Absolutely. is is that a great storyteller knows his audience. And exactly. when you think about it, is is that I could be a great comedian, but uh, and and let's say in 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 English, and and I could come to Denmark and I could say I'm going to tell all my same jokes that I uh, I tell in the United States and there. And let's say I'm in I'm in a, in a comedy uh, club in New York. People are laughing. They're rolling in the aisles. Uh, how funny I am! I go to Copenhagen where you're at uh, close by, and no one's laughing <laughs> because the audience is different. And I probably would sort of say that one of the things that changed a lot with trend following managers and managed futures is, is that there was a language that was used by trend followers in the nineties. It was very different than traditional finance. So, so, so trend followers were an outlier relative to somebody who is a discretionary manager and talked about the, his CFA, and he would use all the same, um, and I don't mean it negatively, jargon that yeah. an MBA would learn. This sure. is that, that the, the storytelling of a trend follower in the 90s and 80s would be uh, at odds with anybody who is trained with an MBA or a CFA. And so what we'll sort of say that as we've moved through time and we now are at 2021, part of the challenge and part of the storytelling narrative adjustment or change has been that trend following has now had to incorporate more of the thinking of traditional finance, more of the thinking and storytelling that you would, uh, so that it's, it resonates with someone who has an MBA or a CFA or a Kaya. And we'll sort of say that even now, we'll sort of say that in a more recent change is, is that now the narrative and storytelling has to adjust to artificial intelligence, machine learning, data science. So now it has to be in the context of how does trend following sort of story fit within the data science story that we're seeing that has developed over the last few years. So narrative has to change with the audience narrative change with the uh, with the knowledge base of the audience. And so the words that are used, the phrases that are used that will resonate with that audience has to adapt to the learning and to the knowledge base of the audience itself. Absolutely. And that's why we have such a hard job within our industry, those of us who uh, are client-facing, of course. Joking aside, you had five different points uh you may not remember what they were but if you do 
Are there any of those that you wanted to bring up quickly that you thought were particularly interesting that we should just touch on before we uh, wrap up for this week? Well, I, I think the one that uh, that resonates well uh, right now is is the whole argument of or issue of stagflation. Mm-hmm. I think that, we, that there are two concepts, or there, are two, and and this again gets back to narrative, is is that there's different definitions of stagflation, and the stagflation story that a lot of people talk about is a long term concept of demographics and aging, and sort of the stagflation that we may have seen in the '80s, where there's the malaise with the with a big energy crisis and you know higher inflation. Uh, so we'll call that stagflation with a big S. I think that what we're really seeing now and the and the story that's permeating with a lot of investors is stagflation with a small s, which means is that inflation is higher than what people expect. So it's higher than than expectations we, we thought three months ago or even six months ago. And growth is starting to slow to be lower than what we expected three months ago. So that in some sense, the stagflation is higher than expected on on the inflation side and lower than expected on the growth side. And I think that this is the environment that we're going to be living in. And I think people are adjusting to sort of post-recovery to sort of say, what's the world after the recovery of COVID or in a post-COVID world, albeit we still are not there yet, And I think that this is what and markets are now starting to adjust to that environment. And and we'll call that that stagflation with a small s. Fair enough. One thing I wanted to bring up um, because I came across it this week and I actually think it's it's relevant for people to be aware of. I don't know if you're aware of this, uh, Mark, you probably are, but you know, we um, a couple of weeks ago, I spoke with uh, Rob and he brought up the whole debt ceiling debate. And of course, we know that they've kind of come up with a a temporary uh, solution right now but around the 4th of um, I think 3rd of December or 4th of December there has to be a resolution on this but actually I came across a little bit of information whereby it seems like that the SEC has ruled that if you own a security like a treasury bill and let's just say it matures on December 3rd. And on December 3rd, we hit the debt ceiling and you don't get paid on the 3rd. Um, maybe you get paid a day after or, 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 or a few days after. Then you have to value that security at zero. Okay. Right. Why is this important? Well, it's important because a lot of money market funds where people think that is the safest place to put your money, of course, a lot of money market funds do have exposure to these uh, bills, and maybe they only have a 5% exposure in a, in a fund, but if they have to mark that down to zero, suddenly the NAV drops to 95 overnight. And that can cause, and I think from memory, that's part of what we saw during the great financial crisis, that the money market funds became problematic, let's put it that way. And that certainly had some... Um, big uh, repercussion, uh, I'll use another word, big problems for, for the year. Uh, <laughs> that, that certainly caused a lot of trouble for, 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 the, for the whole system itself. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Right. And, and I think that this is, 
if you want to study markets, and whether it's trend following or any, there's two, two things uh, that you always have to sort of focus in on. One, there's the law of unintended consequences. Right. Some, some one action can lead to some results that you didn't expect beforehand. And second is, is we'll call it the impact of second order effects. So the first order effect is, okay, well, we got this debt ceiling and it caused some uncertainty. Okay, that's first order effect. How do we do it? Second order effect is, is that, oh, if I'm holding these bills that mature at this date, then I could break the buck on money funds. Oh, there might be a change in the ratings and what what happens to the capital? What happens if, let's say, that treasuries are are no longer uh, uh, are, are downgraded because of this uncertainty? Oh, that's going to have a whole different effect. And, and, and uh, well, what does this have to do with the dollar? Okay. What is it going to have to do with other countries in terms of the, uh, you know, their value of their debt and what is considered a safe asset? So, so there's the tremendous amount of second order, third order effects, which is where real money is made. And you sort of say, well, why do you have to worry about it as a trend follower? Well, I think from a trend following perspective is this is that you do, you may not be able to explain all the second and third order effects but we are going to see it in the prices in markets and so your jo- job is to still sort of say like okay I have to be in the market and constantly watching because there might be a news headline that affects what I think is market 1 but it might have implications on market 3 but I just don't know about it but I got to play the game because I got to be have access to to that because because there will be unintended consequences. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now uh, I've got some important information I want to share, um, but before I do that, let me just run through these uh, wonderful positive performance numbers that we see in trend following land at the moment. Uh, let's enjoy it while it lasts. Beat up fifty. Uh, up 2.96% for the month, up 11.74% for the year. I haven't, I haven't checked. I should have done that. Whether that is the best year in how many years uh, for the B top 50, but uh, I'm sure people will uh, look at that. Actually, I might actually look while we, while we talk here. Uh, well, certainly by far the best we've seen in the last uh, few years. Anyways. The C, uh, SOCGEN CTA index up 3% so far this month, up 10.35% for the year. The SOCGEN trend index up 3.32% for the for the month, up 14.17% for the year. And the short-term traders index also doing really well this month, up 1.98% and up 2.33% year-to-date. Trend barometer closed at 50 on Friday. MSCI World Index up 4.8% for the month, up 17.14% for the year. And the World Government Bond Index uh, suffering down 58 basis points so far this month. This is obviously where uh, there's some really interesting stuff going on. Now, what I wanted to share uh, is something I can't fully guarantee will happen this coming week, but I want to throw it out there because I want to explain. And that is that... Top Traders Unplugged may actually get a new website this week. I am, fingers crossed, hoping that we can get the last few things done. I just want to warn everyone in saying it is the first version of it, right? So don't expect that everything will work perfectly, that we have all the content up there. 
there will be a lot more. And this is obviously also things that Richard and I have been working on. So, and and so it won't be as rich in terms of content in uh, as as where it will be in in a few months. But I wanted to just get it out there, and so I'm pushing hard uh, on the developers to um, to get that done. So that's very exciting. Also, what's very exciting, if we do get the new website up and running, there will also be a new podcast series coming out, um, more or less at the same time, on the topic of volatility. So here, I'm not an expert in volatility per se. So I've asked one of my previous guests, who is who knows much more about volatility than I do, namely Jason Buck, whom you know from uh, my conversation with him uh, on the podcast uh, a little while ago, but also obviously his interviews on on Real Vision and other uh, places. Um, but Jason has done some great conversations with five different volatility managers. So it's technical. It's a little bit nerdy at times, but it's uh, good stuff. So um, I welcome you to check that out as it comes out. I'll probably publish one episode per week, midweek maybe. And there's some other good stuff that I'm working on to come out on the audio side. So I do hope you... Uh, We'll tune in for all of those episodes as well. There's some more Top Traders Unplugged episodes coming up. We've got some great guests lined up for recordings in November and early December. So, um, yeah, lots of good stuff taking place right now. As I mentioned before, why don't you take a few minutes after this uh, episode and uh, take the link toptradersunplugged.com forward slash share. And uh, send it to some of your friends um, or colleagues or family members who are interested in investing. And we can hopefully continue to grow the reach of the podcast. Um, next week, I'm joined by Richard. He's back. So that's going to be super fun, educational. Um, I'm excited to uh, hear what he's got up his sleeve. Of course, you can ask questions by sending them to info at toptradersonblog.com. We'll do our best to get them... Um, answered next week any final thoughts uh, mark before we wrap up for this week this was so much fun by the way thanks for preparing all of this I, I know you're giving our community some sneak previews into stuff that may not even have been published yet so i can't say thanks enough for 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 doing that anything you want to um leave us with I'm going out and do some leaf peeping. So I'm going to go out to the woods today and sort of clear my head and get ready for next week. But, uh, you know, it's, it's always great to sort of talk about different unique topics. And, and uh, I think it's enjoyable to get to, to get a different take and have these conversations. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And I looking out the window here, I've got a few leaves I have to pick up myself. So uh, with that in mind, Mark and I are going to sign off. Thanks so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. And until that time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. 
And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.